Thanks, Catherine. Great to have uh, that part of our Bible read to us so well, so thank you for that. be good to keep it open in front of you, and that's where we're going to be camping out this morning. So uh, let me pray for us uh, that God would help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of being able to hear your word this morning. We pray that it might not bounce off the surface of our hearts, uh, fall out the other side of our ears, but might settle deeply in our hearts and result in action that is pleasing to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at Luke's account of Jesus' life uh, for the course of this term, and it's been great to see Jesus interacting with a whole bunch of different people. Uh, We see at the start, uh, this first part of the passage that's before us today, that intriguingly, we see that men and women are counted amongst those who are the apprentices or disciples of Jesus. Have a look with me again at verses 1 to 3. After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Well, so far, so good. We know that's been happening. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Well, it's interesting. It's worth thinking about the fact that uh, having a travelling ministry must have actually been relatively tough. Uh, It's okay, Uh, we know where we are here, you know where to come. Uh, Church is on on the hill next to the big rainbow tower, you know where to come. If you're part of a travelling ministry, you don't know where it's going to be every week. On top of that, you don't know where you're going to sleep or where the nearest McDonald's or KFC is as you travel around. It gets a little bit awkward to think about the provision of food and beds and all of that. How does it actually happen? It's interesting to note here that the group of uh, disciples that were named a couple of um, chapters ago are now being referred to as the Twelve. They're starting to have, I guess, a position of responsibility and authority within the wider group of the disciples. And so they're called the Twelve. But then we get this wonderful mention that there were also some women who were there as well. And and we can't go past this part of uh, the Bible without stopping to note these three women that are mentioned here. It's interesting to think, you know, why why do they end up travelling with Jesus? A little bit later in this chapter, we'll we'll read it in the um, the next service, but uh, it mentions a man who has been released or set free from having a demon. And at the end of that encounter, it it says in Luke 8, 39, He begged to go with him. He begged to go with him. He'd been set free, and so his natural response is, I want to spend more time with you. That that naturally follows. And what we see with these three women is that there are some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. That's how they're described to us. So it is natural that they would express the same desire as this man who'd been set free from the death. They begged to go with him. We want to hang out with Jesus. It's important for us to stay near him. And then we get these wonderful little bits of biographical detail. Uh, We're told that Mary, uh, also called um, uh, Magdalene, uh, probably because she was from the the city of Magdala is the theory, Okay, Mary of Magdala, Magdalene, uh, from whom seven demons had come out. Now, seven's a whole number. If you're like 10 is a whole number for us. 
for Hebrews 7 is a whole number, a complete number of demons had come out of her. Now, if it had been more than one, I suspect she was very thankful. If it had been just one, she would have been thankful. Here it's saying up to seven demons had come out of her. Uh, what would her response have been? I'm with the guy who set me free. Are you with me? So Mary. Uh, then we also have Joanna. And Joanna is the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Now, Herod is the king. And the one who's the manager of his household is a pretty esteemed position. And she's married to him, but somehow she had either been set free from demons or cured of, a evil, uh, cured of a disease. And so she says to her hubby, thanks very much. Please look after uh, Herod's household. Um, I'm off with the traveling preacher. Now, that's a pretty remarkably bold thing to do and suggests that she was indeed an independent woman in her own right. We're also mentioned uh, Susanna and many others. Um, I actually love that uh, Susanna is mentioned here with no other autobiographical detail. Um, I assume that she has some prominence later on in the early church. This is total speculation on my part. Otherwise, why no more information on Susanna? It says, it says Mary, Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna, and you're like... But we assume, therefore, that she must have played some role of significance um, in the life of the church and been known to others. But it also says there were many others, and then we get this wonderful piece of information. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. The mission of Jesus is made possible, in this case, at least in part, by the generous benefaction of a group of women who support him. I just think this is a fantastic piece of information for us to note and speaks to the independence and also, I guess, the generous heart of these women. Now, that's really just a little uh, caveat to get us into the main point of the sermon today, but I couldn't go past it because Luke loves telling us about the place of women in the early church. Now, uh, does anyone own one of these? Anyone? Yeah, yeah you own one. Um, has anyone ever, um, ever uh, touched it in the car? Okay, all on the count of three. One, two, three. Everyone say no. One, two, three. Okay, you're all lying. Let's go back to confession, okay? Well, here's the thing. Dis distracted driving is really dangerous. Distracted driving is really, really dangerous. I, I was looking at some stats. They say on average, we, we touch our phone or play with our phone when we do it for 18 and a half seconds at a time. Now, if you think you're traveling at, you know, 60 to 100 kilometers an hour, like it is staggering how far you get with your steel missile totally unattended while we attend the most important thing in the car. Staggering, right? Or alternatively, some of us eat in the car, apparently on average for 123 seconds. That's a pretty quick Macca's burger or whatever it is, isn't it? That's pretty amazing. 45% um, of us admit that we're distracted in the car. The rest of us are lying. Is that right? It actually said, it actually studied, uh, I think it was like 400 people or something, and it said only 5% of people uh, in the study paid only attention to the road when they're in the car, 5%. So anyway, 45% of us admit to being distracted. 25% of accidents are related to the fact that we're distracted in the car, and you are 400% more likely to be involved in an accident if you are engaging with your phone. It's pretty convincing, isn't it? Distracted driving is dangerous. Here's the interesting thing I want you to think today. Have you considered the dangers of distracted listening? The dangers of distracted listening. It's right now in church as the word of God is coming to us. 
do you know the dangers of distracted listening? That's really the burden of what we're going to be looking at this morning. And to look at it, we're going to go through this parable that Jesus taught, a parable about scattering. Have a look with me at verses 4 and following. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told them this parable. So they're coming to Jesus. They continue to come to him from all over Israel. It's a large crowd, and he told them a parable. And you go, is that just like an ancient Hebrew word for a cool story? The answer is sort of yes, sort of. But more than that, a parable is a story with a second meaning that rewards seekers and frustrates the apathetic. Okay, it rewards seekers and frustrates the apathetic. See, we came from all over Israel to hear Jesus today, and all he talked about was farming. I know about farming. Boring. There's no new information here. Whatever. I'm out of here. That's a parable, right? It's a story that rewards seekers and frustrates the apathetic. So let's have a look at that parable. What does he say? A farmer, verse 5, went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground. And when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. So here's the question. What's the focus of the parable? And you're all going to jump in and tell me, but hold on. What's the focus of the parable? Well, you could say, is the focus on the seed? The farmer scatters the seed. Well, the seed's clearly important, but it doesn't seem to be the most important thing. Maybe you could say the focus is actually on the sower. There was a person sowing in a field, but the sower keeps doing the same thing as well. I don't think the focus is on the sower, despite the fact that you know it's the parable of the sower. Right, I'm going to suggest you it's not actually the most important thing. The third thing is potentially the soils, the ground on which the seed falls, on which the sower casts the seed. And I want to suggest to you it is the soils that are the most important thing because it's the only thing that changes in the story. The seed doesn't change, the sower doesn't change, but the soils change. So our focus should be on the soils. What a cool story. Let's go home. Except then Jesus says at the end, have a look with me at the end of verse 8, he calls out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And you go, right. Aren't we doing that? We've all got ears. We all heard the story. Why would you add at the end of your story, address to the whole crowd, whoever has ears, please let them hear. And I go, I don't get it. For the people who don't get it, that kind of is the point. That kind of is the point. Now, can anyone do Rubik's Cubes? Oh, you can? You can actually do them. Because everyone would say that they can do them. We can all make them a jumble of colors. Is that right? Yeah, well done. That's very skillful. But you can unjumble them. Is that right, mate? Now, I've never taken time, but there are moves that you can learn, right? So you want to get this square onto that side. It's three twists and the what's the, you know, you can do that. 
Fantastic, mate. I'd love to have one here for you to do it for us. But there are secrets to how you do it, right? And they are never found by the apathetic. How do we know this? Because all of your Rubik's Cubes at home are mixed up or you've pulled the stickers off and rearranged them. Is that right? For the apathetic, the secrets are never revealed. You actually have to invest to get the answer out. Have a look at verses 9 and following. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Now that's weird, isn't it? He's basically speaking to an insider group and an outsider group. There's a whole crowd, and then later on his disciples came and said to him, Master, I know that was a cool farming story, but what was it about? He says, well, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to everybody else I'm speaking in parables. The secret will be revealed to you, and it will confirm the heart. The apathetic heart will never hear it. The seeking heart will be rewarded. You see? It confirms the heart. I want to show you, when Jesus says this, if you look in your Bibles there, you'll see that um, those seeing they may not see is in, is in quotes and kind of inset. Can you see that? It's in, sort of, because he's quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Here's Isaiah in our Bible timeline. And in the wider passage, we hear this. God's speaking to his prophet Isaiah. And he's going to announce a, a word of judgment on the nation because they have been godless. God said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull, close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. It's actually a a word of judgment. Isaiah's going to speak to the people, and they're not going to get it. So they're going to be condemned not to find the answer. Now, in Jesus' case, Jesus, if we move the little thing along, Jesus in in Luke 11, we won't get to it in this series, but in Luke 11, he says this, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is inviting all who are interested to seek and to find. And today, if you're wondering who God is, if you're seeking God, the answer is he will be found by you if you will seek him. He will be found by you if you will seek him. But a parable will turn off those who are self-seekers. Picture of the selfie up there, right? It'll it'll turn off the self-seekers. Jesus, what are you saying to me? What have you done for me lately? Nothing. See you later. It'll turn off those seeking a revolution. So there would have been some people who would have come to Jesus and they would have gone, when are we getting rid of the Romans? When are we getting rid of the Romans? If you're the Messiah, let's go and, I don't know, he's just talking about farming again. This is ridiculous. I'm waiting for the next proper revolutionary and they go home. And maybe thirdly, it, it, it turns off those who are, sorry, what was happening over there? That's a joke, you see. Distraction. Easily distracted. Look, a bird. No, it's, it's like that, right? For those of you who've got the bird brain, oh, look at that. You, you won't stick with the parable because the parable takes some effort. It turns off 
those who are easily distracted. Okay, so what what does the parable mean? Because we've got distracted in the process. What does it mean? We're going to have a look at Jesus unpacking it. He says in verse 11, this is the meaning of the parable. And he works through, he works through the four soils one at a time. This is the first soil. He says, the seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. So you've got the picture of the, the guy scattering the seed around. That is the word of God. So as the word of God goes out, we're going to see what happens to it. Verse 12, those along the path are the ones who hear And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. See, the first thing that happens is the word of God goes out and it can be snatched away. It can be snatched away. The devil wants to take the word away. So by morning tea, we don't have a clue what was said at church. By the car park, our brains are totally disengaged with it's just been taken away. I want you to see God has a different purpose. The devil wants to take the word away so you're not saved. Have a look at God's purpose. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, the devil wants to take the word so you won't be saved. God wants you to hear the word so that you'll repent. Every time the word is flung out, there is a war on. There is a war on. That's the message from the first soil. The second soil, it says in verse 13, refers to those on the rocky ground. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. They wither. They die because they don't have any root. A time of testing comes and they are destroyed. Now it's interesting, in speaking to uh, the Romans, Paul writes this to Christians, to those who persevere. He says this, not only so, but we glory in our sufferings, because you know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. For the one who hears with joy, but then falls away in a time of testing, Everything is lost. For the Christian, they hear the word of God, but by persevering, they have a great hope that will never be put to shame. Testing will come when you hear the word of God. Thirdly, we see a a really dangerous situation in verse 14. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. Here's good enough soil. It grows up. It actually grows. But in its growing, it gets choked by the weeds. Well, what are the weeds? The weeds, we're told, are life's worries, riches and pleasures. And they provide a choking hazard for the people of God who would hear the word of God. Now, I want to work through these one at a time because I think this is actually our most dangerous area. We, we are sitting here, and for you and I, these three things, life's worries, riches and pleasures, are clearly a clear and present danger. So let's think about life's worries. 
Think about life's worries. What would God say to those of us this morning who might have worries? Do I reckon there'll be anyone here who has worries? Of course. We all do. Why are they dangerous? It's not dangerous to have a worry, right? But it's dangerous if our obsession with our worries chokes our trust in God's word. Chokes our trust in God's word. Have a listen to these beautiful words. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Do you remember what Jesus said famously? He talks about the birds of the air and the flowers of the fields. He says, God provides for the birds of the air, and he dresses the, clo- uh, dresses the, the, uh, the flowers of the field. How much more will he care for you, O you of little faith? And he says, instead of worrying, in, in 6.33 he says, but what we should do is seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. So are you being choked by the worries of this world? My question would be, are you seeking first the kingdom? And then uh, in Philippians 4, 6-7, we hear these beautiful words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation. So it's not never be anxious, but rather in the situations where we are, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What does it say? Turn your worries to prayer with thanksgiving. Turn your worries to prayer with thanksgiving. Because we're all praying about our worries, right? God, take it away right now. God, have mercy on me. God, save me. And in the process of being consumed by our worry, we don't look around and go, God, in your gracious hand, you still provide for me. You're providing for me today. I can give thanks for this. I can give you thanks for this. I see that and I thank you. And in reminding ourselves that there is still provision, even in the midst of the crap that's going on, there is still God's provision, right? Then we remind ourselves God can and will. God can and will save me in the midst of my worries. Life's worries. If we submit them to God, we might, in his grace, find God's peace. What about riches? How can riches choke us? Well, Jesus tells us, oh, good thinking, gorgeous. Jesus tells us no one can serve two two masters. Either he'll hate the one and he'll love the other. He'll be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And you go, well, I'm giving it a fair shot, God. Is that a bit too uh, rude, is it, church? It's really interesting, isn't it? Is my life organized by my finances? Or is it organized by my commitment to the kingdom? Am I serving my money or am I serving my master, the Lord Jesus? We need to think about this, don't we? Because if it's money first, it will very efficiently choke the action of the word of God in our lives. There's a beautiful passage in 1 Timothy 6, which maybe we should bookmark and read when we go home later. It's the most amazing passage. I couldn't fit enough of it up on the screen, but I want to read it to you because it's so beautifully challenging. It says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money 
is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Brothers and sisters, we can make money our master and it will murder us. What we need to know is God's provision and trust that he will provide. What about the third one, pleasure, pursuing pleasure? You can imagine I had an interesting time trying to pick an illustration for this one. Um, it says in, uh, in Proverbs 21.17, it says this beautiful thing, whoever loves pleasure will become poor, whoever loves wine and olive oil will never be rich. Fascinating, right? Good connection to the previous one. Right, I'll give up pleasure in order to be rich. Don't, don't do that. Enjoy your olive oil. But, he, but here's the thing. In Titus 3.3, 3, uh, 3, 3, it says, At one time we too were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's what we used to be like, enslaved by our passions and pleasures. How do I know that? Because I'll put them first and above everything else. I'll seek my good, my pleasure first. Not God or his kingdom or obedience to his word. What God offers us is something better than worldly pleasures. It says in Psalm 37.4, one of my favorite verses, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your hearts. And you think, brilliant. So I say yes to God and I get my holiday and my new car. And No, no, no. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. He'll give you back more of himself. Godly pleasure is what we should be seeking. There is a fourth soil that is not choked, that doesn't get eaten by birds, that doesn't wither. A fourth soil, and we see that in verse 14. The seed that fell among the thorns, uh, sorry, uh, verse 15. But the, seed, the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. There is a production that comes from those who cherish the word of God. And uh, we see in, uh, in Colossians chapter 1, he talks about the gospel bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. So the gospel keeps growing and growing. More and more people become believers. And then later on it talks about bearing fruit in every good work. It'll grow not just by multiplying people who trust God's word, but it'll multiply by doing good work in our hearts. What does the productive seed look like? A seed that grows. A seed that grows. Now, there are two stories that follow this, which I think make sense of it. Uh, if you have a desk lamp, where would you put it? You guys are good. You're really good. Uh, have a look with me at verses 16 and following. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disposed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken away from them. Jesus says, no one conceals a light that's stupid. And then he says, there will one day be a light that will show everything. Everything will be revealed. Nothing will be concealed on the final day. God will search our hearts and he will know what we've done with his word. So therefore, listen carefully. And then he tells us some weird maths. If you have, you'll be given more. And if you have nothing, even what you think you have will be taken away. Now, what does that mean? What it means is everyone who has listened to the word and produced fruit from it 
will be given more. You'll be blessed because you listened to the word and multiplied it. But those who have nothing, who didn't produce anything, who were choked, who was, though even what they have will be taken away from them. Be careful how you listen. And then Jesus tells this amazing story about family. Have a listen to me, uh, listen with me to verses 19 and following. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to him to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Hear God's word and put it into practice. It's interesting to note that Jesus' family has no special access. There's no backstage passes if you're part of Jesus' family. And then Jesus makes a a surprising conclusion. He actually offers you and I an invitation into his family. If you hear the word of God and do it, you are my mother, my brother, my sister. You can become family with Jesus if you will listen to the word of God. So how should we live? What should we do with what we've heard today? Well, we should listen, shouldn't we? Listen to the word that's inescapable without being choked, without being choked by pleasures, riches and worries of this life. We need to listen without choking and we need to produce by persevering. Stick with it and multiply the word of God. You see, distracted driving is dangerous. Don't do it. Distracted listening is dangerous. Don't do it. The invitation we hear from Jesus today is this. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us to be those people today not merely listening to the word and so deceiving ourselves, but doing what it says. Make us the productive soil, we pray, that we might be your family. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.